trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I will uh, give you some definite food for thought and ask you to consider it. And if it if it uh, is something that rings the right bell, I hope it's something you'll apply in your life. Otherwise, it's just there to spark independent thought, clear and independent thinking in times of crisis. I try to be dispassionate in how I approach this in the sense that I'm not trying to push any particular pol- uh, partisan or political agenda, but... It's hard to be dispassionate sometimes when you understand that the only protection of our freedom comes from our individual ability and willingness to protect and gain that freedom simply by claiming it and and by living in a manner such as, you know, you won't acquiesce to any collective or state rule to which you don't agree. I know, pretty lofty ideals, right? I'm glad you're here, though. The world needs more wrong thinkers right now, people willing to question the status quo, people willing to have a healthy sense of skepticism towards anything that anyone in power is saying. And I'm going to give you some really solid examples of why that skepticism is uh, not just, you know, necessary for pushing back against, you know, the, the status quo, but it's necessary if you want to maintain your contact with reality. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. Well, as I look around and just, you know, in my limited, uh, you know, interactions with people in my community and and uh, talking to folks as, as I'm out and about uh, living life, It's pretty clear the light is starting to come on for a lot of people. And the people that I talk to, at least the ones who are saying, hey, wait a minute, they're not happy about what they're realizing. And to illustrate what they are realizing, it's in a nutshell, they're starting to realize that all of the misery that we were put through for the last two years was largely unnecessary. And in fact, it's becoming more and more clear that uh, all of the mitigations, you know, the non-pharmaceutical interventions that were were foisted on us from masks to social distancing to close this business, you're essential, you're not, to vaccine mandates, to vaccine passports, and all the other little various controls to get this disease under control, you know, to stop COVID-19. It was about consolidating power in the hands of those who are part of the ruling class. And this is true at every level of government. And now we learn that the CDC has been deliberately withholding data from the public regarding COVID. And the reason they're withholding it is because they're saying that they fear that this could be misinterpreted. Okay, whatever that means. I mean, look, I I don't know about you. I I don't want to be treated like a child who, well, I'm sorry, but this is just over your head. You might misinterpret this. Because I strongly suspect what, uh, what they really fear is that if the public were to see this data <clears throat> and to understand that we have been unnecessarily abused by those in power. 
that there would be, well, hopefully peaceful revolt, but there would be a very quick and sure revolt, most likely removing people from power who made those kinds of decisions and holding them accountable. Nuremberg style, put them on trial, make them answer for what they've done. I want to share with you a commentary from Dr. Robert Malone. We the people demand to see the data. And it starts with uh, with the headline, the CDC isn't publishing large portions of the COVID data it collects. That's from the New York Times from February 17th. The article says, the agency has withheld critical data on boosters, hospitalizations. Two full years into the pandemic, the agency leading the country's response to the public health emergency has published only a tiny fraction of the data it has collected. Several people familiar with the data said. Much of the withheld information could help state and local health officials better target their efforts to bring the virus under control. Two full years into the pandemic, the agency leading the country's response to the public health emergency has published only a tiny fraction of the data it's collected. The CDC is a political organization as much as it is a public health organization, says Samuel Scarpino, Managing Director of Pathogen Surveillance at the Rockefeller Rockefeller Foundation's Pandemic Prevention Institute. The steps that it takes to get something like this released are often well outside of the control of many of the scientists that work at the CDC, end quote. Now, Dr. Robert Malone says, let me translate that quote for you. Basically, a non-governmental spokesperson for the official public health scientific community is throwing Rochelle Walensky under the bus and saying that politicians forced us to commit scientific fraud by withholding key data. The Global Summit doctors and other brave medical practitioners who have stood up to the lies and tyranny, who've been harassed, jobs lost, medical licenses lost, smeared and libeled, are right. The data are being withheld. Dr. Malone says the mainstream media owes a whole lot of us scientists and physicians a huge apology. apology. The mainstream media has to stop being the mouthpiece for the government. This is not communist China. And he says the government owes the American people a huge apology. People in the government who have lied to the American people need to be charged and must be held legally accountable. We, the people, must demand to see all of the data from the CDC and the FDA. Now he says, let's talk data. The CDC is using cumulative data from the beginning of the vaccine rollout in early 2021 to prop up the lie that these vaccines are effective against Omicron. But the CDC is clearly hiding the data about safety. The thoroughly biased New York Times piece above uh, writes further on this. Pfizer's data supported the safety of the vaccine, but researchers said the effectiveness wasn't there with two shots. Dr. Christina Canotti, BayCare Pediatric Service Line Medical Director, said it was effective in the younger kids, so those six months to two years, but in the two- to four-year-old age group, it didn't quite meet the levels of antibody response they expected to see. Now, instead of just having an EUA meeting about two doses, Pfizer is continuing the trial for three doses and will present that data once they have it. Dr. Malone says this is precisely what we've been saying. Why is this important? Well, the FBI have, have not, re- or the FDA rather, have not revealed the efficacy of the boosters for children. That's why it's important. They haven't released the safety data. They've withheld the safety data on the vaccines for children and adults. And he said this must stop. We are deep into outright scientific fraud territory. 
That's pretty strong words. Now he says, let's remember where this started. We've been manipulated from the very start of this pandemic. The government has been deciding what has been written, removed, censored by media and the big tech giants. This is propaganda. In fact, he says, I'm posting the historic references from the beginning of 2020 to show that our government has been involved in scientific fraud from the beginning. Do not forget, this goes back to 2020. First thing he lists is the World Health Organization holds secretive talks with tech giants Google, Facebook, and Amazon to tackle the spread of misinformation on coronavirus. This is February 17th, 2020. From the Daily Mail. Google, Facebook, Amazon, and other tech giants spent a day in secretive talks with the World Health Organization to tackle the spread of coronavirus misinformation. Social media companies, including Twitter and YouTube, have already been working to remove posts about the virus that are proved to be fake. The World Health Organization has offered to work directly with the companies on fact-checking in a bid to speed up the process. Now, posts on the virus that needed to be removed have ranged from those calling it a fad disease or created by the government to claims it can be treated with oregano oil. Companies at the meeting agreed to work with the World Health Organization on collaborative tools, better content, and a call center for people to call for advice, CNBC reported. Second item, Bloomberg, Amazon, Alphabet, among tech firms meeting with the White House on coronavirus response. This is from the L.A. Times, March 11th, 2020. White House officials discussed combating online misinformation about the coronavirus and other measures during a teleconference Wednesday with tech companies, including Alphabet Inc.'s Google, Facebook Inc., and Twitter Inc., U.S. Chief Technology Officer Michael Kratzios led the call, which also included representatives from Amazon.com, Apple, Microsoft, IBM, and other companies in tech trade groups. The discussion focused on information sharing with the federal government, coordination regarding telehealth and online education, and the creation of new tools to help researchers review scholarship, according to a statement from the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy. Cutting-edge technology companies and major online platforms will play a critical role in this all-hands-on-deck effort. That is according to uh, uh, Kratzios in a statement. He said his office would unveil a database of research on the virus in coming days. There are more examples. We're going to come back to Dr. Robert Malone's commentary in just a few moments. Now remember, my goal here is not to make you mad, but if you're feeling a little bit frustrated at the fact that you've been lied to and manipulated... That's totally normal. Take a couple deep breaths. We'll dive back into this the other side of our messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you've been thinking about getting food storage, but if you have been thinking about it, now is a great time to pull the trigger and and start shopping. I'm going to make it easy for you. Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on the one that's labeled lifesavingfood.com. Because right now, Kendall, who is the owner of lifesavingfood.com, will give you 45% off the retail price of ReadyWise food storage. This is a great offer. Now, this does not include free shipping. It does not include uh, no sales tax, but 45% savings, that's a pretty fair incentive right there. So click on the link, take a look around. I'm telling you, their their grab-and-go buckets are really remarkable. 
and they have a lot of different varieties of food. If you have somebody in the household who's gluten intolerant, take a look. You can find food storage that'll work for them as well. And with a 25-year shelf life, buy with confidence. You're going to use this food at some point. It's just a matter of having it for that rainy day. All right, back to our article from Dr. Robert Malone. We the people demand to see the data. And I'm not that surprised because I've seen a lot of stuff over the last couple of years that has convinced me, you know, this crisis is being milked in ways that have nothing to do with trying to, to slow or control a virus, something which even the greatest politicians on earth clearly cannot do. But it's disturbing to learn just how the data was hidden from the American people, actually the people of the world, for that matter, And the CDC and FDA in particular are still playing fast and loose with the truth. Well, there's some data we just can't give you because uh, it might be misinterpreted. Yet we might see through it and understand the awful truth of what has been done to us. And I think that has them very worried and, and, and probably rightfully so. Who wants to sit there in court pleading, hey, I was just following orders. I was just doing my job. As I mentioned in the last segment... Those excuses did not play out well at Nuremberg. I don't think they'd play out well in a similar situation today. Dr. Uh, Dr. Malone says, White House, this is the third example he uses of, of withholding data. White House asked Silicon Valley for help to combat coronavirus, track its spread, and stop misinformation. This is March 11th, 2020. The White House sought help from Amazon, Google, and other tech giants in the fight against coronavirus, hoping that Silicon Valley might augment the government's effort to track the outbreak, disseminate accurate information. This is from the Washington Post. The request came during a roughly two-hour-long meeting between top Trump administration aides, leading federal health authorities, and representatives from companies including Cisco, Facebook, IBM, Microsoft, and Twitter, as Washington sought to leverage the tech industry's powerful tools to connect workers and analyze data to combat an outbreak that has already infected more than 1,000 in the United States. Three participants described the phone and video conversation on the condition of anonymity because the session was private. Most tech companies in attendance either did not respond or declined to comment. Now, Dr. Robert Malone says, The evidence above makes it crystal clear the government has been manipulating the data from the start. Now that Omicron is here and the vaccines are clearly not working. Now that we have data from other countries that there are issues, we must demand transparency and stop the manipulation of the American people. Free speech is free speech. Scientists and physicians must be allowed to discuss data on the Internet. We all must be allowed to discuss data. He says it's time to stop the madness. And how this all ties into the globalist is becoming more and more clear. And he cites the, the, an article from February 20th of this year, the next step for the World Economic Forum <clears throat> from the Brownstone Institute. Which, in part, this is an excerpt from that article, it has been obvious since early 2020 that there has been an organized cult outreach that has permeated the world as a whole. And it's possible that this formed out of a gigantic error rooted in a sudden ignorance of cell biology and long experience of public health. It's also possible that a seasonal respiratory virus was deployed by some people as an opportunity to seize power for some other purpose. Follow the money and influence trails, and the latter conclusion is hard to dismiss. And the clues were there early. 
Even before the World Health Organization declared a pandemic in March of 2020, at least several months behind the actual fact of a pandemic, and before any lockdowns, there were media blitzes talking about the new normal and talk of the Great Reset, which was rebranded as Build Back Better. Pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and AstraZeneca were actively lobbying governments to buy their vaccines as early as February 2020, less than a month after the genetic sequence or partial sequence was made available by China. As a person who spent his whole professional career in pharmaceutical and vaccine development, I found the whole concept of going from scratch to a ready-to-use vaccine in a few months simply preposterous. Something did not add up. And there's more on this at the Brownstone Institute, and he links to this in the article. Dr. Malone says, my last thought for the day, the U.S. government appears to be complicit in the creation of this virus. Again, the people are being manipulated. The NIH and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency at the U.S. Department of Defense must be held accountable, and they must release the data as to what they have funded and what they knew when about the creation of SARS-CoV-2. It is time for our government to come clean. It is time for an investigation. Congress must lead the way. They cannot shirk their responsibility any longer. Pretty crazy stuff. But just, you know, okay, suspend your disbelief for a second here and just say, what if Dr. Malone is right about this? I'd say that's a pretty big deal. I would say that's, that's something that needs to be hashed out. And we absolutely need to know the truth or at least be able to examine the facts for ourselves and decide, okay, is this, does this add up or not? Otherwise, you and I are at the mercy of highly paid and, and well-protected spinmeisters, information managers, and, of course, they're lackeys in, uh, in big tech and in big business who have kind of been co-opted as their, their newest enforcement arm. Pretty sickening stuff. So if you read just one article this week, I think it should be this one from Anthony Davies, Anthony Davies, rather, about uh, politics. And in particular about political parties and the need for a third party alternative that isn't part of the corrupted machinery. Now, that may seem kind of harsh, but I want you to hear what he has to say. He says, Americans have lived with a two-party political system for so long that it's natural to assume, well, the founders designed the system this way, but they didn't. Not only is the Constitution mute on the subject of parties, the parties themselves aren't even governmental entities. They are nonprofit corporations. The same parties whose members decry the excesses of capitalism and the evils of corporations are themselves corporations. And those two corporations have formed a cartel that prevents competing parties from being anything more than fringe players. For a party's candidate to be taken seriously, the candidate must have a place in the televised presidential debates. To get on the stage, a candidate must receive at least 15% support among voters in national polls. But to receive significant support in the polls, a candidate needs to appear on the debate stage. Who created this Catch-22? Well, that is the Commission on Presidential Debates, but it gets worse. Contrary to its name, the Commission on Presidential Debates isn't a governmental body. It's a nonprofit corporation established by the Democratic and Republican parties. Any other corporations that colluded to bar competitors like this would be charged with antitrust violations. And collusion among political parties is worse than collusion in the private sector. 
Anthony Davies says, when private companies collude, customers at least have the option of choosing none of the above by walking away from all of them. But when it comes to electing politicians, none of the above isn't an option. Those who choose not to vote simply have someone else's preferred candidate forced upon them. Now, he says, if there's any place a society should not tolerate collusion, it's in the political sphere. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court appears reluctant to extend antitrust laws to political parties. Are you getting uncomfortable? (laughs) I think this is information that's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Nonetheless, we're going to plow forward with it in the next segment. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, I will make it worth your while by sending a copy right to your email inbox. Think of about 8 to 10 good, well-sourced articles handpicked for their uh, credible, timely information and also their lack of of partisan uh, content. That's what I do on a daily basis. I try to compile the best information I can find. I'm very happy to share it with you at no charge. Just go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and I'll take it from there. So I'm sharing this article from Anthony Davies, one of the hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast, about uh, the third party, and in particular, how the two-party system right now is, uh, is it's part of the problem. It's part of the machinery. It's part of the system and the status quo that is doing its best to bring all of us to heel. Anthony Davies notes, if the Democratic and Republican parties adequately served voters, this might be less of a pressing concern, but evidence shows that they aren't serving voters. And with each passing year, they appear to do less so. In 2004, American voters were evenly split among Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. By January of 2021, the number of Americans self-identifying as Independents equaled the number identifying as Republicans and Democrats combined. Now, if that trend continues, Independents will constitute a supermajority of voters within the next generation. He says, when a party can't attract a majority of voters, it no longer represents the will of the people. And when the major parties combined can't attract a majority of voters, the political apparatus itself no longer represents the will of the people. We don't need to look at polling numbers to see this. Just look at our own behaviors. And many of us who voted for Donald Trump did so because we disliked him less than we disliked Hillary Clinton. Many of us who voted for Joe Biden did so because we disliked him less than we disliked Donald Trump. In other words, our elections are no longer about choosing the best candidates, but trying to avoid the worst ones. At 40%, Joe Biden's latest approval ratings are lower than Donald Trump's at the time he lost the election. Let that sink in for a moment. Americans disliked Donald Trump so much that they booted him out of office, yet today they dislike Joe Biden even more. Anthony Davies says, once upon a time in America, voters came together and selected a president for all of us. But at least since President Obama, half of us have taken to declaring the winner not our president. Americans no longer act like one people choosing a president. We act like two peoples choosing competing presidents who alternate holding power. 
We got here because the two major parties have drifted away from the plurality of Americans. More and more Americans don't identify with either of the major parties. And the major parties won't allow a third to compete on a level playing field. So he says the time is ripe for a third party to replace one of the other two. As Lincoln's Republican Party replaced Henry Clay's Whig Party, which replaced Hamilton's Federalist Party, and as Jackson's Democratic Party replaced Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party. It's time for a third party to replace one of today's major parties. Now, he says there is a rare opportunity here for the Libertarian Party, but it's one they will squander to their detriment and ours. The Libertarians have no Lincoln, Clay, or Hamilton. The Libertarians have no great leaders because Libertarians don't take themselves seriously. Consequently, no one else does either. Political success requires a grounding and compelling and clearly articulated principles and the ability to compromise. The major parties lost these ingredients decades ago. They managed to hang on to power only because they control entry to the presidential debates. Libertarians have compelling and clearly articulated principles but they will squander their opportunity to become a major party because they refuse to compromise. Too many libertarians happily reject practical ideas for better government in favor of impractical ideas for a perfect one. And fighting over minutiae as to what constitutes a perfect government, they tear themselves apart, ending ending up less as a cohesive party than a loose confederation of malcontents. Their great is an enemy to the nation's good. But in this, he says, libertarians do provide some value. The very compromise that politics demands erodes principles, and erosion of principle is what lies at the heart of the decay in the major parties. The Democratic and Republican parties have ceased to be associations of voters upholding principles, and instead have become electoral machines delivering preferred outcomes to the highest bidders. Neither pursues what's right. They pursue what they want. And in the face of, a ne- of necessary compromise, someone needs to keep a steady light shining on principle. Now, on their present course, libertarians will never rise to power as a political party. But as keepers of philosophical principle, they may well provide guidance to the third party we desperately need. What is certain is that either a viable third party must soon emerge or the two major parties will split the country as they continue desperately to hold on to power in the name of an ever-shrinking minority of the people. Yeah, I can see why this would make some people, uh, you know, uncomfortable. But I think it's probably it's probably something that needed to be said. Yeah, Anthony Davies has a very solid take on such matters. So I wanted to shift gears here for a moment, and uh, I just I want to put some audio in your ears because the Canadian news media has been hard at work, actively trying to deceive the public through very distorted and false narratives regarding the Freedom Convoy. Oh, yes, they were all racists and misogynists, and, you know, the police were right to restore order in the way that they did. And it's likely that the American mainstream media is going to do the same thing with the Freedom Convoy that is currently, you know, getting ready to head out for Washington, D.C. So Twitter already has pulled the plug on a video released by the organizer of that Freedom Convoy USA 2022. Why would they pull that? Because this video is where this organizer states with perfect clarity what their effort is all about. I want you to hear what he has to say in his own words. And just remember that, uh, you know, the the idea that, oh, they're just going out there to overthrow the government. It's another January 6th event. Uh 
Listen, listen to what the organizer has to say. This message is for the president of the United States of America. My name is Kyle Sefcik of the Freedom Convoy USA 2022, and our routes meet here in D.C. on March 1st in time for your State of the Union address. We are very organized, and our routes are public. I even pulled a permit for the National Mall to be respectful. I just want to be as transparent as possible from the start so there's no confusion. We are coming peacefully, and we're going to do this lawfully and constitutionally. I want the rest of the world to know our plans so that there's no twisting and lying about who and what we are. I'm coming to you as a father, a small business owner who's unaffiliated to any parties. We just want government overreach to end. On behalf of Freedom Convoy USA 2022, we are asking you to end the state of emergency, end the mandates once and for all. Sir, the world is watching us because they know that if what's happening in Canada happens to us here in the land of the free, then freedom as we know it is gone. So we are leaving the choice to you. The decision is in your hands. This whole convoy, this whole assembly on the National Mall, it doesn't even have to happen if you just end things now and we can get on with our lives. To you other convoys that plan on meeting us here, we look forward to seeing you and joining with you. We're gonna do this right. We're gonna do this honorably. Mr. President, we have no other motives in this mission. You see, the government, our elected officials of both parties have failed us tremendously these last two years. And now it's time for us, we, the people, to fix this, to end this. We're ready to get back to our lives, the ones promised and guaranteed in the United States Constitution, Bill of Rights, and the contract that you signed and swore an oath to under the one true God. This is simple. End this. Wow. I mean, that's uh, your boy. Talk about some wild-eyed, spittle-flinging rhetoric. My goodness. But you know that uh, the mainstream press is going to try to spin this. And I I know it sounds conspiratorial, but uh, as you're going to hear in the next hour of the show, um, there's pretty ample evidence that uh, this this turn towards, uh, you know, well, you know, January 6th was all about insurrection. And that's that's the only reason those people went to Washington was to overthrow the government and deny the legitimate, you know, 2020 election results. I I don't know how any objective person could look at what happened at the Capitol that day and come away with anything other than than more questions than they went in with simply because there were very clearly organized individuals teams, if you will, who went in there and facilitated the, the breaches into the Capitol and then were encouraging people to, to get in there and, and walk around. And I know that, uh, you know, false flags are something that only Russia engages in to uh, justify invading Ukraine. That's a subject for another show. But um, the bottom line is, don't be surprised if you see something, someone acting out and it's blamed on the members of this Freedom Convoy 2022, as an excuse for this is why we have to crack down. I know what I'm saying sounds very uh, conspiratorial and maybe even a little bit paranoid, but let's remember who uh, walled off the Capitol and put National Guard troops everywhere for weeks on end because some people were wandering around in the Capitol. And they still call it an insurrection. Has anybody been charged with that? Just, Just asking. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you are fortunate enough to find yourself landing in the Beehive State, and there are a lot of people moving to the Intermountain West, but if you're lucky enough to land in Utah, you should talk to Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage to quickly get you the home loan you need at the best rates possible. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and also the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. You can stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Take note that Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And also note that Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, if you are a bit fuzzy on why property rights are foundational to a free society, there's a great object lesson happening right now in Canada. In fact, Charles C.W. Cook says that Canada's cash grab is a perfect reminder to the rest of us why ownership matters. This is a great article. He says, do you want to own a drill, asks the old adage, or do you just want two holes in your wall? Well, he says, having watched the behavior of the Canadian government over the last couple of weeks, I think I'll take the drill. Historically, this drill or two holes in the wall question has been invoked in the context of marketing. Its purpose being to remind the purveyors of consumer products that they should focus on what their wares do rather than what they are. Don't tell people how strong the engine is, a consultant might say. Tell them how fast they can drive. More recently, however, the idea has been adapted to explain the benefits of a futuristic model in which, as the Cato Institute's Paul Matsuko suggests, we will own less but have more. In the coming years, Matsuko suggested this week that Americans will choose to swap out physical possession for access to streams of service. Think Netflix or rental cars, but for almost everything. Rather than storing an object 24-7 in case you might infrequently use it at some indeterminate point in the future, he concludes our stuff will circulate. Now, Charles C.W. Cook says, will it? I'm not so sure. In theory, it's possible for one to combine the streaming model with the sharing model and to cut down on waste as a result. But we don't live in theory. We live in practice. And in practice, we simply do not have enough trust in our corporations for such a system to be attractive. Citing supposed consumer demand, the BBC has been quietly editing its archives such that any British citizen who does not have a physical copy of old shows or productions has lost access to the originals forever. Appealing to diversity, companies such as Airbnb and Uber have announced that they will not serve anyone whom they believe to be racist or involved with a hate group. And then there's Canada whose government has not only armed itself with the power to freeze the bank accounts and cancel the insurance policies of its political opponents without due process, but which is currently taking steps to make that power permanent. Again, he says, I think I'll own the drill. Given the structure of modern life, it would be tough for those of us who are alarmed by Canada's behavior to respond by refusing to use the international banking system. But to acknowledge that one's options are limited in that realm is in no way to resign ourselves to vulnerability everywhere else. Charles C.W. Cook says, As a personal matter, I have no interest whatsoever in outsourcing my ability to drive, handle do-it-yourself projects, mow my own lawn, or protect my own home. But if I did, the events of the last few months would have spooked me out of it forever. 
My car is just that. My car. Yes, it sits in the garage for more time than it's used. Yes, in a bloodless sense, that is somewhat inefficient. But those inefficiencies are unquestionably worth it to me in exchange for the convenience and security that comes along with my being its sole and undisputed owner. There are no terms and conditions attached to the possession of my car. There's nothing I can say that could inspire a Twitter mob big enough to take it away from me. And I'm obliged to ask nobody's permission but my own when I wish to use it. On paper, the idea of access to streams of service sounds innocent enough, but the problem as ever lies in the access part. He's got a great point. Now he asks, does this sound paranoid? It shouldn't. We now live in a world in which the word freedom is cast as white supremacy, in which donating to a legal protest is deemed akin to terrorist financing, and in which all manner of political dialogue is redefined as hate speech or misinformation or even treason. And he asks, are you confident that you will never end up on the wrong side of this habit? Are you sure that you will never become persona non grata for a while? Are you absolutely, utterly, completely positive that you're different from those other guys? Because he says, I'm not. Not for a solitary second. And if by chance I end up needing two holes in my wall while the mob is buzzing hungrily around me, I'll need a sizable cache of my own equipment with which to make them. Think of it as my very own emergency act. (laughs) I love how he puts that. So it kind of gets you thinking, doesn't it? Are you willing to to march boldly into that future of, uh, you know, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy? Look, I, I should I should probably take a minute here and just I, I, I want to share some hard won lessons that, that I learned last year when I packed my family up and moved them. And, uh, and I'm an accumulator. I'm one of those people. I was I was raised by parents who lived through the Great Depression, who saw their parents hang on to every piece of tinfoil, every broken shoelace, every grocery bag they ever brought home carefully and neatly folded and stored just in case we might need it someday. I guess when when my mom and her siblings cleaned out my grandparents' house after my grandma passed away, um, th- it, they were just stunned at uh, at how much stuff she had put aside. Now, she wasn't a hoarder. I don't want you to get the impression that, oh, it was just stacked everywhere. It was neatly put away, but they threw almost nothing away. And that was the product of having lived through the Great Depression and seen times where you absolutely could not get your hands on things. So you you had to keep stuff in case you needed it. So I am a person who tends to accumulate things. I, I'm, I'm very preparedness-minded and self-reliance-minded. And so if I look at something and think, oh, you know, that, that could come in handy. But there, there hits this point where you are experiencing diminishing returns on that sense of security. Namely, when you have to pack it up and move it, it's miserable. I mean, I don't want to sound like too big of a wimp here, but uh, going through that move and just facing the enormity of trying to pack up and categorize and sort everything that needed to be moved, um, it's one of the very few times in my life where I have felt so miserable that it's, it's not like I wasn't suicidal, but at the same time I was like, you know, kind of wish I could just die right now. <laughs> God, call me home so I don't have to deal with, with this, uh, this, the magnitude of being owned by my stuff. So I'm not trying to uh, 
to promote a you know a materialistic mindset where you know your worth and your your self value and your success can only be seen in how many toys do you have and how much have you accumulated. I know there's a, there's a good chunk of the world that does view things in through that prism. I don't. I'm I'm actually leaning more towards becoming a minimalist, but I do believe it's it's essential to have your own emergency act and your own ability to stand up and and take care of you and yours and maybe help out your neighbors in a time of need. And I don't know where that balance is. You know, I think it's going to be different for each person between what's enough versus I'm very grateful for what I have. But for what it's worth, I'm just going to ask you to consider this. For all the focus that we put on material things, the true value, the 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 most effective currency that you will find in your life is actually going to be found in the relationships you have with the people around you, both family, friends, and in the community in general. Don't believe me? You know, think about the times when when someone finds themselves, you know, um, in an unexpected crisis. Have a good friend who uh, was, was building a couple of years ago, fell from uh, from the roof of a of a cabin that he was working on and broke his back, and uh, you know th- this guy was the the sole provider for his family, and with a broken back and you know in a very physical trade like like building and construction, you know this this effectively put him out of work, but because this friend is such a good person and has helped so many people in so many ways throughout his community. When someone started a GoFundMe to help him meet his medical expenses, to help provide for his family through the, the recovery process, and by the way, he's, he's doing very well. He's, he's back on his feet and, and, you know, he's back up to speed. But it was the relationships that helped provide for him at that time of need. So, yes, have stuff that you need. Stuff can come in handy especially if it gives you the ability to say no when someone in authority is demanding you have to do this if you want to participate or you want to eat. That's okay. I'll take care of myself. But don't neglect those relationships. That's the real currency that you should be banking. And it starts with being a good person to the people around you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This is not a program where you will get all the answers to the relevant problems of the world. No, sir. This is a place, though, where you will get thoughtful discussion of current events with a focus on the principles that are at stake. And it's also a program for the people who are humble in spirit, honest in heart, and understand that uh, you have to be willing to stand up at some point and claim your freedoms. There's a lot of stuff going on right now that's that's keeping us on our toes. And and I'm going to be sharing some some things with you that I hope will be helpful. If you find value, if you find something useful and it's like, "Hey, that's actually something practical I can apply in my life." 
All I would ask you to do is help others find this program. Just tell them about it. Share a link, if you will. There's plenty of podcast links out there where you can can share it after the fact. Listen to it at you know your own convenience. But let others know. Oh, one other thing. Show some love to my sponsors, because they are the ones who help make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. They include LifesavingFood.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. One of the toughest things that you and I have to learn to do through the course of our lives is to trust in our own ability to comprehend and judge the facts. Got a great essay from Paul Rosenberg about names and things, understanding and remembering. He says, humans, if they are to function as intelligent beings, must trust their abilities to comprehend and judge. And their ability to do that rests upon their cognition, their reasoning, operating in ways that don't overburden and misdirect them. Without that, they're doomed to confusion, overload and self-doubt over all their lives. Now, unfortunately, the roots of traditional education work against natural processes, so both parents and independent educators need to turn this around, teaching children in ways that develop their natural operations rather than subduing and excluding them. He says, I'm not trying to be flamboyant, but I'm not finding a softer way of saying this that doesn't turn into a lie. The fact is, modern education is organized around the needs of those who sit at the tops of hierarchies, not around the needs of children. Just look at some of the conflict you see at the school board meetings and you can see why, see how that plays out. He says, for the good of the human species, this needs to change now. So one of the more important short phrases of the past thousand years came from Francis Bacon, who said, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Now, what he meant was this. Nature simply is. So if we wish to use it, we must first accept it as it is. And that's precisely the first choice we must make for the education of children. We must develop what they are, not try to shove them into little contrary molds like that of the obedient drone taking orders and robotically pursuing them. Without any serious argument, the standard model of educating children for the past century and more has been memorize and repeat. We all know this model whereby children are given a set of facts to remember and which they are subsequently tested upon. Those who memorize well get good grades. Those who fail to memorize get failing grades. Now, there is some utility in remembering things, of course, but this model is precisely the wrong way to get it. Memorize and repeat is a good model for computers, but it's a contrary model for organisms like us. And he says, let me restate that for clarity. Memorize and repeat is unnatural to us. We sense that as schoolchildren. But the rest of the world was rigged against us, and so we accepted that we were deficient. But Paul Rosenberg says we weren't deficient, and we were instead being forced into a contrary model. Now, those of us who are able to comprehend this need to prevent it happening to our children. Yes, there will be times when remembering things matters most, but those are the exceptions, not the rule. So what then is the alternative model? Most of us can imagine nothing else than the old one. And the answer is an old one with a tremendous pedigree. First, seek understanding. When we understand, we remember, and lists of empty facts are of little use. When a child grasps a concept, you can see their face light up as their mind opens and sees. This is true education, and it does not come from rank memorization. 
A psychiatrist, Boris Cetus, wrote, while modern education was forming, don't try to memorize, just understand. Then you can't help but memorize. Paul Rosenberg says, memorize and repeat is a mechanical model, suited to machines and especially to computers. But we, however, are not machines. We are organisms, which is more. And he says, again, let me make this as clear as I can. Every healthy human is a natural-born creator. To train such beings in obedience and repetition, to punish them for free and creative thought, is to damage them worse than the feet of ancient Chinese women were damaged by binding. He says children love to learn. That's the flow of energy that we need to use, obeying nature in Bacon's terms and not to fight. Any system of education that fights the inborn processes of human learning is a system to walk away from. Now, he says, none of this is to say that children are automatically pure and should be allowed to follow every wild impulse they experience. But it is to say that children are nascent creators, not robots, and they should be educated as such. Now, along with the memorize and repeat fetish comes a religious devotion to names and categories, to abstracts rather than concretes. One of the great object lessons in this difference was physicist Richard Feynman. His raw brain power was significantly less than many of than that of many other physicists, but he stood out as something of a magician among them because his thinking was far less bound than most of theirs. As his friend and cognitive scientist Marvin Minsky put it, there was nothing unusual about him at all except that he didn't have very many bugs. One of the troubles with trying to understand new things is that we all have preconceptions. We're screwed up in one way or another. When Feynman faced a problem, he was unusually good at going back to being a child, ignoring what everyone else thinks and saying, now what have we got here? He was the least stuck person I've ever known. And Paul Rosenberg says a major component of Feynman being less stuck was that he always tried to understand the thing itself, not think through a structure of categories and names. That is, not to think as schools teach children to think. Here's a passage from a publication on teaching physics that Feynman wrote. Quote, you can know the name of a bird in all the languages of the world, but when you're finished, you'll know absolutely nothing whatever about the bird. So let's look at the bird and see what it's doing. That's what counts. I learned very early the difference between knowing the name of something and knowing something, end quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says what I'm advising here is for parents and other serious educators to drop memorization, lists of names, and other forms of mere data. I'm advising them to teach understanding, to teach efficient, natural methods of understanding and the thrill of discovery. And he says, here's another illustration of what I'm talking about, again, from Feynman. Quote, my father taught me to notice things. And one day I was playing with what we call an express wagon, which is a little wagon which has a railing around it that children pull around. Well, it had a ball in it, and when I pulled the wagon, I noticed something in the way the ball moved. I went to my father and I said, say, Pops, I noticed something. When I pull the wagon, the ball rolls to the back of the wagon. And when I'm pulling it along and suddenly stop, it rolls to the front of the wagon. Why is that? That, he said, nobody knows. The general principle is that things that are moving try to keep on moving, and things that are standing still tend to stand still until you push on them hard. This tendency is called inertia, but nobody knows why it's true. Now, that's deep understanding. He didn't just give me a name. He knew the difference between knowing the name of something and knowing something. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says that's a proper lesson in teaching children. And it's something we need to incorporate into our teaching, whether it be bedtime stories 
or physics. Now, he says a great deal more could be said about this, but I think we covered the essential points. Children need to be taught in ways that nurture and direct the best aspects of their nature. They are not little savages that need to be regimented and subdued. They are natural-born creators that must be guided toward maturity. Yes, children, like ourselves, have unfortunate inheritances and unruly impulses, and these must also be trained. But their fundamental components make them nascent creators and more. Our education of these beings must be built upon what they fundamentally are, accepting nature rather than fighting it, and that necessarily begins at home. Now, I'm hoping that you're translating this as I'm sharing this with you beyond simply the idea that, uh, well, you know, this is only about, uh, um, you know, kids and teaching children. Because hopefully you and I are, are lifelong learners and we're still, you know, adding to our understanding of the world around us. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the light come on in someone's eyes when they realize, you know, what, what does it mean to have inalienable rights? What does it mean to truly have a free market, to have sound money, to have freedom of conscience? What does that mean? What are the principles and practices on which our liberty is based? And you can tell when the light comes on. Not so much by the oh, starry-eyed look in their eyes, but... Uh, the fact that when people understand this, they live differently. They carry themselves differently. That's why I do what I do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I'm going to warn you right now. I'm going to venture into some territory here that uh, may seem a little bit uncomfortable for some folks. But others, I hope, will recognize the necessity of talking about these things and having these concepts clear in our minds. After seeing what has happened in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, to seeing what's happening in Canada right now, there's something that every one of these uh, these countries has in common as, as they have uh, been brutal to their people. And that is they have, uh, they have eliminated, to the best of their ability, an armed citizenry. They've disarmed the public by law. And I'm suggesting to you that when government assumes tyrannical powers... And armed citizenry is the final check on illegitimate power. Now, to the control freaks out there, that sounds like, oh, my gosh, he's advocating killing, you know, government officials. Oh, no. What I'm advocating is that there is a time and a place where you may have to stand up and defend your liberties and defend your God-given rights to the point of bloodshed. Now, we have a lot of auxiliary precautions in place and a lot of alternatives prior to reaching that point. But in case you haven't noticed, we're also being rapidly pushed into a corner where we have less and less options. And it's, it's a pretty safe bet that uh, whatever, whatever push for consolidation of power we're, we're about to see, gun control is going to be a major part of it. For our own safety, we're going to be told the average American citizen must give up his or her guns. And what I hope to persuade you is that that is absolute garbage. And it's the most foolish thing you could do because this it would be akin to turning loose of your life preserver even as you're standing on the deck of the Titanic watching the water get higher and higher. 
So I want to share with you an article from Scott McPherson. The militia is more important than ever. The natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. He says, these wise words from Thomas Jefferson seem particularly insightful after nearly two years of COVID hysteria. Across the country and around the world, governments are in full steam, grasping power and lashing out at anyone who questions authority. What we're seeing is the natural progress of an ongoing assault on individual freedom. Now, Scott McPherson says it's bad enough in the United States, where lockdowns, mask mandates, and attempts to compel people to get vaccinated have run the economy onto a sandbar and pit citizens against one another. But it could be worse. Look at what governments are doing in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and closer to home in Canada. Societies that once prided themselves on their liberal values have turned into dystopian police states almost overnight. Now, when American statesmen gathered in Philadelphia in 1787, they understood the nature of government and the tendency of its institutions to grow at the expense of freedom. Having seen arbitrary authority exercised by King George and his minions in Parliament, and having successfully fought a war of independence to free themselves from their grasp, they devised a federal system that provides numerous means to counter the rise of tyrants. A written constitution denoting the express powers of this new government, employing checks and balances and a bill of rights, was seen as the best means of protecting the people. Representatives in the legislature are chosen at regular elections. Criminal cases are decided by juries selected from the people at large. The right of the people to peacefully assemble, speak their minds in public or in print, and petition their government for a redress of grievances, all of these were a first line of defense. Now, should they ultimately fail, however, armed citizens would act as a counterpoise to power to ensure that some means of resistance would always be available The Second Amendment ensured that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, critics of the Second Amendment point to its opening words, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, as evidence that it was merely meant to protect a state's right to maintain a militia, and that well-regulated means the government has the final say in the matter. But well-regulated in 18th century parlance meant properly functioning and trained not subject to the whims of politicians. And while a militia was seen as being necessary for security, it was understood in a historical context. A militia is an armed citizenry available for service in the event of an emergency. The nature of that emergency depends on circumstances. When Tacitus, the first century Roman historian and scholar, wrote his Germania, he observed that the people of the ancient tribes transact no business, public or private, without being armed, comparing the ownership and bearing of weapons to the Roman toga as conferring full citizenship. When the German tribes during the Volkwanderung migrated westward, their laws and customs followed as they swept across England and the 5th through the 7th centuries, replacing from the 5th through the 7th centuries, replacing centuries of Roman rule. Eventually settling down to the plow, they never relinquished the right to be armed. The feared, the Anglo-Saxon militia, was their greatest security against external threat. Centuries of harsh Norman rule, beginning with William the Conqueror's defeat of King Harold Godwinson at Hastings in 1066, could not erase the value Englishmen placed on their personal weapons. 
Villagers were still expected to answer the hue and cry when a criminal was about, serving the local sheriff as a posse comitatus and the county's lord lieutenant as a reserve force in case of invasion. Every man was his own soldier and his own policeman, wrote the historian G.G. Colton. When English colonists began populating the eastern seaboard of North America in the last part of the 16th century, they relied on the militia for internal policing and protection against Indian attacks and foreign aggressors. From Massachusetts to Georgia, armed Americans gathered to perform military exercises and service, acting as an extension of the civil authority. Echoing down through the ages, membership in a militia denoted respectability and full citizenship in the community, as John Shy notes in A People Numerous and Armed. In New England, members of the militia elected their officers rather than serve under those appointed by a colonial legislature. And this idea reached its zenith during the War of Independence when the king and parliament declared the people to be in rebellion and in defiance, George Washington and George Mason of Virginia formed the Fairfax County Militia Association, an illegal organization. Their actions were emulated by patriots throughout the colonies. And the militiamen who turned out regularly to fight the British Army and the Loyalist partisans were therefore acting as their, against their own lawful government in defense of liberty. The framers of the Constitution knew this when they praised the militia, militia years later and cited it specifically as necessary to the security of a free state. Now the militia, as the people at large, armed with their own personal weapons and organized for defense, is no less important today than it was in 1775. Images of people being attacked for leaving their homes or gathering in peaceful protest reveal the true nature of the state. Those who once naively believed in the inherent decency of their leaders are getting a taste of what absolute power means in the hands of megalomaniacs. Standing astride the path of any march into tyranny is still the citizen militia. Oh, I understand this. You know, that's Brian. This is subversive talk. My goodness, you're, you're, you're talking about people, you know, taking up arms against against their legitimate governments. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. But it's also acknowledging that legitimate government, in air quotes, becomes illegitimate when it departs from its primary directive of safeguarding your and yours and my God-given rights. When it becomes a tool of oppression, sometimes that's necessary. And for all of its pomp and circumstance and the way it's puffed up and, you know, tries to appear as, as mighty and invincible... There are simply too many people that if, if, enough, if enough armed Americans were righteously pissed off at what their government was doing, there aren't enough cops, there aren't enough soldiers, there aren't enough ways to bring them to heel if they chose to resist. Now, I'm not saying these kind of things lightly. But I'm looking at what's happening to these uh, first world nations around us, Canada being the most recent example. And saying if they would treat people that badly just because they're disarmed, as, as bad as our government treats us when we are armed, how bad would they treat us if we weren't? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. I, I'm really sorry if I, if I seem like I'm a bit maudlin today. I just, I have this sense that uh, we are, we are turning a very serious corner. And I'm hoping that you and I are going into this with our eyes wide open, more certain of who we are and what we stand for than simply what we're against. And, and that, uh, that requires some serious introspection on our part. There are a lot of folks who believe, well, you know, I'll know when it's time. I'll know. Someone will give me the go ahead. Someone will give me permission when it's okay to stand up for my freedom. But that's not how it works. You live as a free person by claiming your freedom and living in such a manner as to never acquiesce to the collective or the state. And if you understand that government can't under any circumstance bestow any right, nor can it take any right away from you unless you voluntarily allow it to happen, that's what it takes to maintain your freedom. Got another article here, and this one... uh, this one I hesitated to share just because I, I don't want to depress people or make them feel like, oh, my gosh, this is things are bad. But if you have seen the ways that uh, police in Canada, Australia, New Zealand have been brutal to the people of those nations, you've got to understand that part of that brutality is based in the understanding that these people were disarmed by law. I've got an article here from Karina Schmidt that notes that Democrats are seeking to turn America into the new Venezuela. They can't succeed, though, until they have disarmed us, which is why we cannot allow it to happen. Karina Schmidt says the Bill of Rights is very clear and does not have any stipulations pertaining to the Second Amendment. There are no conditions attached to the Second Amendment, such as the type of firearm, number of bullets in the magazine, caliber size, manufacturer, or even how many firearms you can have on you or in your home. The Second Amendment clearly states that the citizens of the United States have the right to keep and bear arms. It's that simple. Nothing more, nothing less. But she says Democrats use every opportunity, no matter how minuscule the connection might be, to oppose the right to keep and bear arms for law-abiding citizens. Pro-gun organizations are attacked and insulted for almost any reason if it gives the gun controllers an angle to push their agenda to strip almost all Americans of their God-given right to protect themselves against aggressors, private or governmental ones. Social media giants help the cause by making invisible or banning posts they disagree with. Our constitutional rights... And I'm going to just add a little correction. It's our God-given rights are disappearing at the combined hands of government and giant corporations. Stripping the people of their right to protect themselves is a slippery slope toward the downfall of a free country. It can rapidly turn a beautiful, resourceful, and free country into a living hell for its citizens. The radical Democrats are on a path to dismantle the United States, the way Venezuelan dictator uh, Nicolas Maduro and his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, have destroyed Venezuela in the matter of a decade. This year in June, it will be 10 years since Venezuela banned private gun ownership. The new law banned all commercial sales of firearms and ammunition to private gun owners. President of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, had succeeded Hugo Chavez, who had already installed a socialist regime. Maduro's ultimate goal was to disarm all civilians to keep the Marxists in power no matter what. The only people who could buy firearms and ammunition since June of 2012 have been the military, police, certain groups like security, and let's not forget the supporters of Nicolas Maduro's regime. 
Now, their excuse was that more had to be done to combat the more than 18,000 murders that Venezuela had had the year before in 2011. That was the excuse and the one that lots of Venezuelans bought. Many didn't yet realize what it would mean for their own safety against a radical leftist government that was out to impose iron-fisted control over its people and prevent the people from fighting back against a brutal regime. It's scary. And it's very scary because it did not stop there. The violence and murder rates were not reduced, much less eliminated. The Maduro dictatorship dismantled the Venezuelan constitution and now fully dominates the people by force. For years and with intense pressure by the Obama administration, the Democrats in America have encouraged Americans to give up their firearms while the politicians become better protected by armed guards themselves paid for by the taxpayers. Yeah, the very same people who tell you to hand over your firearms and ammunition are those who spend your tax dollars for their personal protection. Funny how that works. In many places, state governments, the liberal-run states, have encouraged people to engage in buybacks. The Obama administration most assuredly encouraged this brutal attack on our Second Amendment. Like Nicolas Maduro, Obama's objective was to disarm all Americans and make them vulnerable to iron fist rule. Surely you remember when he thundered out to millions of Americans that change was on its way, but did he explain to you what kind of change he wanted? No, not in detail. Because he knew, and the Democrats know, that no one would have voted for him had he been honest and transparently disclosed that fundamental change meant discarding the Constitution's negative liberties, in other words, the limits on what government can do to you. Now, she says Democrats are sly. They snake their way into your life piece by piece and infiltrate all aspects of American life. They encourage you, bribe you with money. If you give up your guns of your own volition, you're the only one to be blamed. You know that, right? You took the bait. Now they got you under control because you have no firearms to protect yourself and your family if ever there's a need. The point is, in socialist regimes, there will be a need. Less than a decade after Maduro banned all gun and ammunition sales to private Venezuelans, reports started to emerge about how Venezuelans regretted terribly that they had let their dictator take their guns. Venezuela has become a living hell for its people. Their radical leftist government has descended into a cruel socialist nightmare. And today, the Venezuelan people are starving to death. Millions are out of work. Buildings are deteriorating. Violence erupts in the streets. The shelves are empty. Inflation is through the roof. Their votes do not count anymore. Freedom of speech has been criminalized. Their right to own property without worrying that the government can take it any minute is ever-present. They do not have the right to defend themselves under the socialist government. And the future of the Venezuelan children is looking bleak. Think about that. Sounds like Venezuela is just a little farther down the path that Democrat-run cities across America are on, doesn't it? Now, she says the Maduro regime called for a gun-free Venezuela. But what the people got was a prison. And that's something the American people must consider when they foolishly give up their rights, whether it's the right to freedom of speech or the right to keep and bear arms. Once you give up your rights, there is no turning back without bloodshed. In 2017, the Venezuelan government armed 400,000 loyalists. Only those who are loyal to dictator Maduro's iron fist rule are allowed to keep and bear arms. 
In 2018, many Venezuelans had by then realized their mistake and called the gun ban a declaration of war against the people. And they were right to feel that way. The disarmament of any nation makes its people defenseless against tyrants. Only the oppressors have guns. It's about social control backed by force. It's not about security. It's about a monopoly on gun control, mind control, violence, and money. Let's not forget the role of money. Money is the number one motivator in robbing the people, as the government itself produces almost nothing. And Venezuela is a perfect example of that. Karina Schmidt says all dictatorships start this way. Take control away from the people. Make them defenseless. Own them. It's modern-day slavery. It's not slavery as in a private master and slave. It's the state owning its people. Gun control is people control, she says, and the taxpayers pay for it. This is the truth, and it's up to you what you do with it. But demand your God-given right to keep and bear arms and to freedom of speech. I mean, look, I, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I think that uh, in the days ahead, we're going to see exactly why that particular limit on government power, the, the um, prohibition against infringing the right of the people to keep and bear arms, is going to be much more clearly understood. Look, it should be crystal clear. No matter how radical or how moderate you may, may consider yourself, Government cannot protect you in your time of need. And worse, may actually be the the one who's victimizing you if you're not careful. Having the tools of freedom, having the will to use them, having the training and skill at arms to know when it's appropriate and when it isn't. These are the things that are required from a person who is truly responsible about their freedom who's claimed their freedom, is using their freedom, and willing to defend their freedom. Oh, I know. I I probably sound like some tinfoil hat-wearing nut job. Perhaps I am. But before you uh, allow yourself to be persuaded into handing over yet another God-given right, just consider that uh, it hasn't traditionally worked out well for the people of nations who were legally disarmed their obedience brought them a world of hurt this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show hey welcome back to the show Just want to give a quick shout-out here to the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This is currently owned and operated by Teresa and Eric Alsop. Eric and I go way, way back. I think I first met him in Kiwanis. (laughs) And uh, I I just have such respect for him and and also for his wife, Teresa. Wonderful people running a wonderful family-owned business. And if you or someone you know does long-arm quilting, does embroidery, or any kind of sewing... You really ought to talk to them. Let them be the ones to to help you with getting your sewing machine. You know, sewing machines start as low as $199, but they don't just sell the machines. They service what they sell. Even if it's something you didn't buy from them, they still can service your, your machines. They're trained technicians. They can even train you how to use your machines. 
How 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 nice is that? It's it's a skill that uh, you know if you're feeling a bit rusty, go take a class from them. They'll show you exactly what you need to do. They've got all the supplies that you need. Again, that's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They're located in St. George, Utah, and I'm very proud to have them as sponsors of the program. Well, Julie Kelly, in my opinion, is a national treasure when it comes to shining light on the media's exploitation of the January 6th investigation. And she has a recent article. This was published in uh, AmericanGreatness.com. Trudeau-style tyranny is already here. She's saying here, as freedom lovers justifiably recoil at Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's crackdown, Americans worry, hey, that could happen here. But she says they're too late. It already has happened. She says, in a recent court motion, Joe Biden's Justice Department changed the official name of its investigation into the protest at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Originally designated the Capitol Breach Probe, the department just replaced breach with a more sinister word, siege. The Capitol siege refers to the events of January 6, 2021, when thousands of individuals entered the U.S. Capitol and U.S. Capitol grounds without authority, halting the joint session and the official, the entire official proceeding of Congress for hours. Matthew Graves, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, wrote in a footnote in a February 10th filing, Graves commended D.C. and Capitol, uh, I'm sorry, D.C. Metro and Capitol Police for clearing the Capitol of rioters that afternoon. But courtroom rhetoric isn't the only thing that Graves is heating up. Julie Kelly says the Justice Department has opened a capital siege section in the agency's criminal division and wants to hire at least 20 more lawyers to help prosecute Americans for any involvement in what happened on January 6th. Qualified attorneys will be employed on a temporary basis and could earn as much as $176,000 a year. Capital siege prosecutors will complement an army of thousands of Justice Department employees, including FBI agents from 56 field offices across the country, handling what Attorney General Merrick Garland warned is the biggest investigation in the department's history. More than 730 people have been arrested so far, amounting to more than three times the number of federal agents or federal arrests, rather, related to the 2020 mostly peaceful riots that lasted for months and resulted in far more death and destruction. And the first major trial of a January 6th defendant starts next week. Now, as freedom lovers justifiably recoil at Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's crackdown on vaccine mandate protesters, Americans worry the same sort of political retribution could happen here. And she says, I'm sorry to report, it already has. The scenes from Ottawa are matched or surpassed by the images here, including thuggish cops attacking January 6th protesters with mace and explosive devices. The difference? Instead of mounted police trampling a woman, ours merely shot and killed one woman and beat up a few more. She says what the Trudeau regime is now releasing against the, unleashing against the truckers and their supporters has been underway in America for more than a year. Using January 6th as a pretext... The Biden regime is brandishing its authority to crush political dissent. Now it appears Trudeau and his apparatchiks are stealing the U.S. Justice Department's playbook of power and pain. Now these comparisons are stark. Take, for example, the words of Steve Bell, acting chief of the Ottawa Police Department. He told a reporter over the weekend how the government will hunt down those who stood in defiance of Trudeau's vaccine mandates. During a press briefing on February 19th, Bell said, If you were involved in this protest, 
we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. This investigation will go on for months to come. It has many different streams from a federal level, from a financial level, from a provincial licensing level, to a criminal code level, from a municipal, from a municipal breach of court order level. It will be a time-consuming and complicated investigation that will go on for a period of time. And Bell further promised he would hold accountable those who took over our streets. Now, Julie Kelly says, rewind to January 12th of 2021 and a press conference in our nation's capital featuring Stephen D'Antuano, chief of the D.C. FBI field office, who detailed how federal, state, and local law enforcement planned to capture and charge anyone involved in the four-hour disturbance. After noting the FBI doesn't do easy, D'Antuano, fresh off executing the apparently FBI-concocted kidnapping plot of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to generate bad pre-election headlines for Donald Trump, warned Americans of what was to come. D'Antuano said, This is a 24-7, full-bore, extensive investigation into what happened that day. I want to stress that the FBI has a long memory and a broad reach. So even if you've left D.C., Agents from our local field offices will be knocking on your door if we find out you were part of the criminal activity at the Capitol. Except the FBI didn't knock on doors. It kicked them in. Hundreds of Americans have been awakened before dawn by dozens of armed FBI agents and military-style vehicles to capture even nonviolent protesters. FBI Director Christopher Wray declared January 6th as an act of domestic terrorism. Julie Kelly says in her new book, uh, he aimed government tools reserved to fight foreign terror threats against Americans on the political right. After January 6th, defendants were hauled off to to jail post-arrest. The Justice Department demanded pre-trial detention for at least 100 citizens based on the premise that any participation in January 6th rendered the accused a domestic terrorist. Some have languished for over a year in a political prison set aside for January 6th defendants as they await trials that the Justice Department repeatedly delays while it conceals evidence and fabricates certain charges to support the insurrection narrative. Legal fees and job losses of bankrupted families, banks and online service providers such as Airbnb and DoorDash dropped customers simply for being charged in the January 6th investigation. GoFundMe, as in the case of the Canadian truck convoy, banned fundraising appeals for January 6th families. Children have turned on their parents. The FBI continues to encourage relatives, co-workers, and neighbors to rat on anyone they know who went to the Capitol on January 6th. Big tech companies work hand-in-hand with the FBI to match cell data with the phone's owner to help identify more suspects and scour deleted social media accounts to find critical memes of Joe Biden and Democrats to use in court. Broken men and women with no option, no other option rather, plead guilty to low-level misdemeanors such as parading in the Capitol in an attempt to end their legal torture only to be sentenced to prison time by judges of both political parties who then berate them from the bench as if they had committed the most heinous of crimes. Biden, like Trudeau, refers to protesters as white supremacists and Nazis while hiding from his own countrymen. Access to downtown Ottawa was restricted and Parliament Hill was off limits to Canadian citizens just as much of the Capitol complex was shut off to Americans for months. In fact, to stoke fear on this side of the border over a potential truck convoy, the Capitol Police, the Gestapo of the Democratic Party, complete with a new spy unit to target Republican lawmakers, 
is once again threatening to erect temporary fencing around the Capitol building to create more useful optics for the regime. The real siege against democracy, she says, did not happen January 6th of 2021, despite the Justice Department's attempt to rebrand its investigation as such. What is happening here, as well as in Canada, is the real siege on political freedom and expression, and the last stand of feckless, hypocritical leaders like Biden and Trudeau, who've lost the trust of those they were elected to lead. As Victor Davis Hanson observed in his column Monday, North Americans are watching a tragic comedy featuring a cast of clueless Justin Trudeaus and bumbling Joe Bidens who simply cannot fathom why few anymore are listening to them. So like all weak leaders losing their grip on power, they force people to listen the only way they can, by the heel of a boot. So says Julie Kelly. I've got a link to this in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you this is the time for you to become as radicalized as possible. I'm just saying we're being forced into having to make some pretty tough decisions. And I can understand where a lot of people might just want to shy away from it. I don't know, man. This sounds like it'd draw a lot of attention or it could possibly be risky. You're damn right it can be risky. Freedom has always been risky. And it's always required courage and commitment on the part of people who would have it. But it's not going to be given to you by someone in authority. You have to claim it for yourself. So do it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.